This afternoon, we're going to be looking at um, a passage that uh, I think helps us to understand, at least helps me to understand, this whole, if you want to call it a balance, you might, in, in the Christian walk. You know, there's, um, there's, there's always a, a question when we start talking about the... Um, when we start talking about the Christian experience and um, we preach about salvation, and especially when we are, we are talking about the, the whole issue of obedience and of, of um, you know, keeping the commandments, the, the question always comes up to us as Adventists, well, are we saved by grace or are we saved by works? And um, what place does obedience have in this whole experience? Um, do we have to obey? Is it just something that happens, you know, perhaps after we're saved? Or is it something that's required after we're saved? And, you know, sometimes I think we get a little bit of our tails tied in a knot when it's simpler than we, we make it out to be. And so I thought this afternoon, since this morning we were talking about salvation, we were talking about the gospel, I thought we'd look at one verse which I think fairly aptly summarizes this balance, if you call it that, um, between faith and works. And uh, so I, I think it'll be a good study together. It's not going to be a long time together. We're just going to spend a few minutes to see what God's Word might teach us. And so as we begin, let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. Father in heaven, thank you for giving us this day. Thank you for giving us Sabbath. Thank you for each one who is here. And uh, I just want to pray that you would bless our time together. Uh, we are grateful for the blessings that you've given us already today. We're thankful for the beautiful day outside. We're thankful for the fellowship that we've enjoyed. And we just want to pray that as we open your word once again, that your spirit would guide us that um, he might be our teacher, and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, well, you remember that, um, that Jesus said, take my yoke upon you, right? And he says, my yoke is easy. And there were some, there were some who might say, because of this, uh, this statement, my yoke is easy, they might say, see, it's, once we come to Jesus, we don't have to worry about anything. We just accept him as our Savior and then uh, we're saved, and you've heard different variations of that. Some even say, once you're saved, you're always saved, right? And others say, well, you know, uh, what you do, your works or your obedience, your fruit that you bear after you're saved, it does matter. You might not be as, at a, as high a place at the table in heaven, but you'll be in heaven anyway because you're saved, you know? And uh, there's different views of how these works fit into the scenario, which, by the way, I think that last view is, is quite legalistic, to think that even after we're saved, that our good, our good works are going to merit us anything in heaven, um, to me, is a, is a concept that's based on, on works and merit. But um, I want us to just look at the context here between, um, between uh, before we get to our verse, I want to look at the context of what we were looking at this morning. When we look at the context of Matthew chapter 11, 28, and 30, and we back up a few passages, back up all the way to Matthew 5 and 6, if you can, 
And um, I'm just going to point out, and we're going to look together at a couple of passages which it would appear that are contradictory to what Jesus is saying. For example, let's look here at the end of Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, you know the story, uh, the Sermon on the Mount, the uh, longest discourse that Jesus gave that is recorded for us. And um, for example, he says this, verse 43, you have heard that it has been said, you shall love your neighbor and hate thine enemy. Okay, that's what the culture demanded of the time. But I say unto you, Jesus says, love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for those who despitefully use you and persecute you. Now, you tell me, does it sound like Jesus' yoke is easier or heavier than what the culture demanded? If we're just talking about, if we're, if we're talking about external fruit in our lives, it would seem, if it was just humanly speaking, it would seem that Jesus actually has greater requirements for salvation, or at least of us, than than, than the Pharisees would have themselves. And notice verse 47, if you salute your brethren only, what do you more than others? Do not even the publicans the same? Be therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect, right? Um, we could go on and we could, we could see here in this same sermon how Jesus says, well, you've heard, you know, it said you should not commit adultery. But in verse 28 of the same, cha same chapter, he says, but I say unto you, Whoever looks on a woman to lust after her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So these, whatever Jesus' yoke is, it apparently, it apparently does not take away from the requirements of obedience, does it? It actually, I believe, is what empowers us through a converted experience. But let's look back. I want to look at our verse now. We're just going to spend our time mostly on this one verse. So if you have a marker in your Bible, you might want to put it there. Micah chapter 6 and verse 8. This is a little prophet, a uh, little book, uh, what we call a minor prophet in the Old Testament, towards the end of the Old Testament. Only seven chapters, and we're going to be looking at near the end or the middle of the sixth chapter. Micah chapter 6 and verse 8. We're going to spend most of our time here, although we'll look at other verses to to, to, to compare, but I want, us to, I want us to see what this one verse can teach us about salvation. Um, I think it's a very succinct summary that Micah gives us here. Micah chapter 6 and verse 8, and this is what he says, He hath shown thee, O man, what is good, and what doth the Lord require of thee? Don't you think that's what we need to know? But, he says, to do justly, and to, what is the second thing? love mercy, and to walk humbly with thy God. So what I want us to do here, I'm not sure if these are, these are, um, these are, these are uh, cooperating, but I want us to just unpack this verse by verse, or, or part by part, as we look at this verse. He hath shown thee, O man, that's the first phrase, isn't it? And that is a whole topic we could spend looking at revelation, inspiration, but God's Word is how we find the path to salvation. He has shown thee, O oh man. There's, there's something in that. You know, I remember when I was a kid, I learned a song. It was sort of a popular praise song at the time, I guess. I don't know. 
one of my teachers taught it to me, but it, it said something like this, um, there's a road inside of you, inside of me there is one too. Oh, stumbling pilgrim in the dark, the road to Zion's in your heart. Now, I don't know who wrote that. I don't know what their intentions were, but I can say this. The humanist approach to salvation, which says we just need to look inside of us to find what the inner light in us would lead us to do, just to be true to ourselves. That's not the biblical way to salvation. The biblical way to salvation is God has shown us. And where has He shown us? He's shown us in His Word. He's shown us through the messages of the, of the prophets. And we, we won't take the time to look at all that right now, but, but um, the, uh, Paul wrote Timothy, he says, from a child you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise unto salvation. The Scriptures. This is where God shows us what is required of us. And whatever we, whatever we determine, we dare not be among those who simply say, I think. But we want to know what does God say. We dare not just, you know, have a philosophy and a theory that all makes sense and is cohesive and not contradictory within itself. We want to know what does the Word of God say. He has shown the old man what is good. And as we go on, it says the three things that we're going to look at here. He says, He has shown thee, O man, what is good, and what doth the Lord require of thee, but to do justly. Anyone have other translations of that? What does it say? Did anyone know what the word just means? When it says, the just shall live by faith, what is it talking about? Or when we use the word justification, what does that mean? To do justice? To do what's right? Often we use a synonyms like righteousness. Justly is sort of like rightly, to do, to do the right thing. Now you might say, wow, God, you know, Micah is just here explaining what does God require of us. And the first thing that he introduces is what we do. Does that seem like it might be maybe works-oriented? Well, it could be, except, except that we remember that our own works are not righteousness. All of our righteousnesses are as what? Filthy rags. Filthy rags. The only way we can do justly, the only way we can obey God's word, keep his law, do righteousness, if you please, the only way is if we have a miracle of conversion in our heart and God's grace empowering us. Okay, I want to look at a couple of verses. Um, keep your finger here in Micah chapter 7, and I want to look at a couple of, of promises from the Old Testament. You might not have seen them as promises before, but if we look back in Exodus chapter 20, what do we find in Exodus chapter 20? We find the Ten Commandments. So we would think that this would be a good place to find out how we can do justly. I mean, this is the expression of God's will for mankind. This is the law of God by which we are to be judged and compared. And notice what it says. If we, if we notice in Exodus chapter 20, of course, there's a couple of things that we have to point out. The, first of all, let's look at the first two verses. 
Exodus chapter 20 and verse 1, God spake all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Now, what is the context then for the Ten Commandments? Redemption. It's past tense, right? These people are in the wilderness. They're on the way to the promised land. They may not quite be there yet, but they're on the way to the promised land. And God is reminding them, you have been delivered from the house of bondage. Does that sound familiar to us in a spiritual sense? God calls us out of Babylon, He calls us out of Egypt, He calls us out of spiritual bondage, and He says, if the Son of Man makes you free, you are free indeed, right? And Jesus says, listen, I mean, when Jesus said that, the Pharisee says, We've, we're Abraham's seed. We've never been in bondage to any man. Well, they hadn't studied their history very well, but anyway, they thought they were sovereign even when they were in bondage. I understand. But Jesus says, he who commits sin is the servant of sin, right? And Jesus came to set us free from sin. That's the bondage he's talking about. So in a spiritual sense, we are leaving Egypt. Jesus says, I have brought you out of bondage. I've delivered you. You shall have no other gods before me. The Ten Commandments become less of, of uh, declarative like, uh, like uh, pronouncements that something we're supposed to do and if we read it in that sense, they become ten promises, don't they? Because we have been delivered out of bondage, we no longer have to have other gods. And I'll, I'll remind you, this is the only way we're going to leave Egypt, is if God delivers us. Because we are powerless by ourselves to be free from the slavery of sin. We are powerless, and it's only God's grace that can empower us to be free from that bondage. Now, I want to skip down. Notice with me, we could, we could read all of these Ten Commandments as Ten Promises because God is our Redeemer who has brought us out of Egypt. But if we look down in verse 20, Exodus 20 and verse 20, the, uh, Moses said unto the people, Fear not, for God is come to prove you, and that His fear may be before your faces, that ye, what? Sin not. And so here you have, I love this passage, <laughs> don't be afraid, fear not, for the Lord has come before you that His fear can be in your, in your faces. And it's like, is there a contradiction here or what? What's this, why, why does He say, don't be afraid, but you're supposed to be afraid, or fear not, but fear? Um, there's, there's obviously something that we're missing, it may be in the translation, I'm not sure. But, but what I think Moses is trying to say is that God doesn't want us to be afraid of Him in the sense that we are, we're this little peon and we're sinners, and so we're about to get squished by this great angry God. But He does want His fear to be before our faces, which I, I like to use the word not just respect, because I think that's involved, not just reverence, but I think the fear of God is a part of the conversion process whereby instead of being so concerned about what people think of us, we come to be more concerned about what God thinks of us. And um, I love this because it's a very liberating message. I don't have to be so concerned about the approval of people. I'm not saying that we should become pariahs in society and just try to be obnoxious or anything like that. 
But when my priority is that Jesus approves of my life, I'm not so concerned then, even if people do disapprove or look down on me because of the decisions I make. And I would propose to you, I would propose to you that before we can do justly, we have to have the fear of God implanted in our hearts. Before we can live righteously in a world where righteousness is not popular, we have to care more about what God thinks about us than what man thinks about us. Jesus said, um, that which is highly esteemed among men is an abomination in the sight of God. That's how different God views things and the world views things. And so he says, they're not going to receive you because they haven't received me, right? The only way we are going to be able to live righteously, to do justly in the sight of God consistently is if God works a miracle of changing our hearts. Now, I want to, I wanna, before we move on to the next part, I want to look at one promise here. And um, if we turn with me, keep that mind in your, in thought in your mind and turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 32. Jeremiah chapter 32. You're familiar with the new covenant that we read in Jeremiah? It's quoted by the apostle in the book of Hebrews. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days. I'll put my law in their hearts and so forth. Write it in the most inward parts. Isaiah, uh, Jeremiah chapter 32 and verse 40. It's another iteration of the same one. And I think it's parallel. So you can compare the everlasting covenant here and the everlasting co covenant elsewhere. Notice what he says. Notice how he describes what he's going to do in this miraculous transformation of our hearts. He says in Jeremiah 32, verse 40, I will make an everlasting covenant with them that I will not turn away from them to do them good, but I will put, what does he say? I will put my fear in their hearts. What we read about in Exodus chapter 20, the Lord has come that his fear may be in before your faces that you sin not. He says here, it's not a matter of me rigidly, legalistically saying, I'm not going to sin, I'm not going to sin, I'm going to keep those Ten Commandments. No, it's a matter of God putting that in my heart as part of the everlasting covenant. Do you see that? This is something He does. So even my obedience is predicated upon and based upon and contingent upon God working something in my life which I cannot do for myself. It can't be meritorious then, right? Because it's, it's by grace too. It's all through His miraculous power. I will put my fear in their hearts that they shall not depart from me. So when the Bible here says in, in Micah chapter 6 and verse 8, when it says, do justly, it's not beginning with a legalistic form to religion. It's not saying, well, just start doing what you know you're supposed to do and then it'll all sort out. No, he's saying there's only three simple things that are required of you. The first is to do righteousness, to do justly. And boy, I don't know about you, when I read that, I start sensing more and more my need for Jesus, not less and less. Because I, as, you know, as good as our lives can be, if we were to spend time at the foot of the cross comparing my life with the requirements, I fall short. And that's why I need Jesus.
There are some people who, in understanding the gospel, stop here. Okay, do justly. And they start making lists. And even if they theologically know that it's not by their own power, they're, they're making lists. And not only are those lists applicable for themselves, <laughs> those lists are most convenient for application to others. You know what I'm talking about? And so we, we come along and we say, oh, blah, 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 blah. You're supposed to be doing this and this and this and this, and they may be good things, right? And that's why there's a second part to what God requires of us. <laughs> the verse doesn't end there with doing justly. What does it say? Love mercy. Love mercy. It's not just having mercy in, you know, okay, well, I guess I have to. But to love mercy, that's an, that's an experience. I like it when the Bible uses words that are clearly emotive and heart-related. And loving mercy is heart-related, right? It doesn't say have mercy. It doesn't say practice mercy. It doesn't say do mercy. It says love mercy. And loving mercy means that even though I am allowing the Lord to change my life so that it doesn't matter what people say about me because I'm going to follow him and his word and his will. People might think, listen, if people think I'm extreme, if people think I you know, go to church on a weird day, if people, people listen, that's not, that's not, I want to do justly. I want to, I want to do what he requires of me, right? But not only that, I want to remember where I came from. I want to love mercy. I've met people who, who are very well-meaning, I'm sure, who very well-intentioned, who were very well-intentioned, but they really wanted everybody around them to have the same doing justly as they did. Now, I don't want to get into specifics here, but you don't understand what I'm saying. We forget sometimes that God took us over a period of time to where we are, right? And we forget that we didn't, we didn't just get there overnight. As I look back on my own life, even growing up in the church, my family grew through a period of time, and it's years, not just days. But sometimes we, we have this idea that, well, you know, we know all of this truth and all of these good things, and we should, everyone should be right there now, or at least by next Sabbath, Right? And this is where I think it requires us to love mercy. What is loving mercy? Loving mercy, I think, is while not lowering our own standards, being able to love and accept and encourage those around us. I look at it this way. I think there's something happening that's going to happen before Jesus comes. I don't want to get too far off the subject here, but if we look at the three angels' messages, you remember the, each one in Revelation 14, they, the angels come with a loud voice. Remember that? Worship and all the, you know, the first angel's message, second angel's message, third angel's message. I would believe, from my study of prophecy and history, that this 
these three angels' messages aptly describe the Seventh-day Adventist movement for the last 170 years. It's a worldwide message. It's being given with a loud voice. Many are being converted. But do you know that Revelation predicts that Jesus does not come again until what it describes as another angel. We sometimes call it the fourth angel, right? Revelation chapter 18. You remember that? Without going into detail in Revelation chapter 18, I want us to just recognize the Revelation 14, the angel speaks with a loud voice and has a worldwide message. And historically, that's Adventism. But what happens at the Revelation, the angel of Revelation 18, that did not happen with the first three angels, is the earth is lightened with his glory. I believe this is talking, when glory is used in the Bible, it's often talking about character. And I believe what's missing in the Adventist message is not necessarily a doctrinal position. But like Jonah, we've been preaching effectively the message, the ideology, the doctrines for a loud voice. People have been converted. It's a worldwide movement. But what the world is waiting for is a revelation of the character of God and His people. Revelation 18, the fourth angel, is a revelation of the same message. Come out of her, Babylon, my people, lest you be particular sin. Same, we already heard that in the second and third angel's message. But this time it, is, it has the power, great power, the text says. And the earth is lightened with His glory. It's the character of God. We are right sometimes. But we need to not only be right, but be loving. And uh, Micah 6 and verse 8, when it says, He has shown thee, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justly. He doesn't stop there. He says, love mercy. The world is waiting for a manifestation of the character of God. That's what it's waiting for. And I believe when that happens, this whole great controversy is going to be wrapped up. I think, I think that's, going to be, that's going to be when God's people are ready and when Jesus can make a very short work and cut it short in righteousness. But the text doesn't end there. In Micah chapter 6, verse 8, it continues. And what does it say? He has shown thee, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly. You might say, well, why do you need that? I mean, you would think that if, you know, if showing mercy sort of encapsulated the character of God, walking humbly should be a given, right? You would think. But the reality is, the reality is before Jesus can come again, we not only need to figure out the way we treat other people and the way we reflect the character of God, but there's got to be a humility that is a part of God's people. Now, why, do, why is that? I believe, I believe that just like on the day of Pentecost, even, no, even greater than on the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit is poured out in latter rain power, a few words spoken, like Peter's sermon, if you read it, it doesn't take more than about a minute and a half. Thousands making decisions for Christ. 
if God pours that kind of power out upon His people while we are still proud, what would it do to us? It pretty much finishes off, right? Somehow, God wants us to not only do the right thing by His grace because He's implanting His law in our hearts, not only love our neighbors as ourselves and love mercy as He describes here, but He also needs to bring us to that experience while still being humble and kneeling at the foot of the cross so that our pride in what He allows us to do does not become our downfall. I believe God is seeking to pour out His Spirit on His church in the last days. And I believe He's trying to pour out His Spirit on our personal lives, on our witness, on our communities, on our homes. And uh, He wants us, first of all, to be able to walk humbly before the Lord. I would propose to you today that if you want the balanced gospel, you find it all in in Micah 6, verse 8. Do justly, love mercy, and walk humbly before God. I want to propose to you one other thing, though, and um, that is, if you will turn with me to our final text, Revelation chapter 14. Revelation chapter 14, I want us to look at the first angel's message. The first angel's message, we begin in verse, verses six, verse, well, we'll begin with verse 6 and we'll read verse 7 also. And I saw another angel fly in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach unto them that dwell on the earth, to every nation and kindred and tongue and people, saying with a loud voice, what does he say? Fear God. And what does he say next? Give glory to him. For the hour of his judgment has come, and worship him that made heaven and earth and the sea and the fountains of water. I I want us to see here, I think this is really neat. I think that as we compare Micah chapter 6 and verse 8 with Revelation 14 and verse 7, we could notice that doing justly is an approximate equivalent to this command. Do justly, fear God. That's how God... Again, is this, is this a legalistic thing? No. Jeremiah 32, verse 40 tells us it's a new covenant experience. This is, a, this is a grace experience. This is a miracle experience. But doing justly, the obedience of God's law, is the same thing as fearing God. It's the same thing. What does he say? He says, love mercy. And the first angel's message says, give glory to God. What is that talking about? It's basically the first angel's message is saying the same thing that Micah 6 and verse 8 says. Obey God through an experience with Him and love other people. Reflect His character, His glory to the world around you. That's exactly what it means to give glory to God. There's more than one way to do it. Um, We know that Paul says even in our lifestyle, what we eat and drink, we give glory to God. It's not just what we say, the profession we have, the doctrines we believe. It's the way we live our lives. So the first angel's message says, fear God, give glory to Him. And then it also says, worship Him that made heaven and earth, the sea and the fountains of waters. The basis of worship is humility. The basis of worship is recognizing who we are versus who He is. 
Does this make sense? I would, I, I would propose that the first angel's message is nothing but Micah 6 and verse 8 put into Revelation in time symbology. The same message. Do justly, love mercy, walk humbly. Our message today is fear God, give Him glory, and worship Him. It's the same experience that God wants us to have. And I'm thankful. I'm thankful that in this one verse, in Micah 6 and verse 8, oh, as well as in Revelation 14, 7, I suppose, we can see that God's message is a balanced message, isn't it? And He's interested not just in what we do. He's interested in our heart. And he's interested in keeping our heart and our heads together in His hands. And um, so I'm just thankful that we can serve a God who makes things simple for us. Amen? It's not, a, it's not rocket science. You don't have to have a PhD. You don't have to go to seminary. Micah says, look, I'll make it simple for you. What does God require? Do, do justly, love mercy, and walk humbly. And I have found that, if I'm honest, I need His help pretty regularly with all three. I need that experience of His grace to be converting my heart each day, each step of the way, so that I can do justly. See, the, 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 the temptation is for us to either love mercy so much that we don't do justly, or to do justly so much we don't love mercy, and in any case, not to walk humbly. Only God can help us to have it all put together in one package, right? And that's what I want. I'd invite you to pray with me as we conclude. Father in heaven, thank you for giving us your word. Thank you for making it simple for us. We want to have your fear before our faces, to keep your commandments. We want to do righteousness, and we can't of our own. We claim your promise that you will do that in our hearts, that you'll put your fear in our hearts, that we might not depart from you. Lord, we can't reflect your character on our own either. And we just pray that you'd help us. Help us to be a part of that last day, day group of people who are represented by the fourth angel in Revelation 18, who lighten the world with the glory of God. And yet, even though they are doing what is probably the most significant, they're part of the most significant movement of all time, they still walk humbly. Help us, I pray. Help us to keep our eyes on Jesus, not on ourselves. Help us to keep our eyes on Jesus and not on one another. Help us to reflect to the world around us who Jesus is and how He loves us and how He's coming soon. May we do justly love mercy and walk humbly. We pray in His name. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.